This is The Rounds Table. Hey, Rounds Table listeners. Welcome back to another week on the show. As always, thank you for tuning in. We appreciate your listenership as we continue to grow on an international level. That being said, we have a home favorite coming back to us, although he's coming from Boston. You know him. It's Mike Fralick. He's coming from the Brigham and Women's Hospital, where he's a general internist and a research fellow. And if you haven't been paying attention to the medical literature, this guy is on fire. He's publishing like a beast. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks for having me. I always appreciate it. Mike and I like to do rapid fire, so we're going to get into round one. Ding, ding, ding. Mike, take it away. Sure. First study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in May of 2018. It was entitled Bopidogrel and Aspirin in Acute Ischemic Stroke and High-Risk TIA, referred to as the POINT trial. So what was the point of this trial, Mike? The point of this trial was answering the simple question, does a combination of clopidogrel and aspirin reduce the rate of recurrent stroke following a minor stroke or TIA? Hang on a second. Haven't they already asked this question previously? Yeah, they, they sure have. So the CHANCE trial published in the New England Journal in 2017, um, they demonstrated that in a Chinese population, the combination of aspirin and clopidogrel reduced the risk of recurrent stroke without an obvious increased risk of bleeding. But the major question following that study is how do these results apply to a non-Chinese population? And certainly that was the major reason why this trial was conducted. And beyond just sort of outward ethnic differences, obviously they've discovered that the Chinese population actually has a genetic polymorphism to metabolizing clopidogrel. Is that correct? Yeah, that's part of it, but also the nature of the atherosclerotic disease and the degree to which it affects extracranial versus intracranial vessels is different between the Asian population and non-Asian population. So there is some, you know, very important reasons why those results might not apply outside of that population. Fair enough. So tell us, how did they go about studying this research question? Uh, so this was an international double-blind uh, placebo-controlled randomized trial, primarily out of the U.S. Um, it was not industry-funded, but Sanofi did provide clopidogrel for this study as well as matching placebo. And the most important inclusion criteria, so these were patients with a minor stroke defined using the um, NIH scale, so less than four. And for anyone unfamiliar with the scale, it ranges from zero to 42. So you either had to have an NIH less than four or a high-risk TIA defined using the ABCD2 score. And if you had either of those, you were randomized to dual aspirin as well as lipidogrel for the next 90 days. And the most important exclusion criteria was that these patients could not have atrial fibrillation or severe carotid stenosis. And just as a point of clarification, Mike, how did they know they didn't have severe carotid stenosis if they're being randomized to these treatments within 12 hours of their event? Oh, good question. Mainly through imaging that they get done quite quickly. So, you know, the CTA would help to determine that. And then also you could get Doppler imaging for these patients as well. All right. So just a point that if you didn't get that imaging specifically, if you just had a plain CT head, you may or may not know at the time of randomization. But tell us, Mike, what was the primary outcome that they're measuring after this randomization? So the primary outcome was a composite of uh, major ischemic events. So that included ischemic stroke, myocardial infarction, or death from an ischemic vascular event within 90 days. So a fairly common outcome that we see in stroke trials. And their primary safety endpoint was major hemorrhage, which included intracranial hemorrhage, a bleed that required two units to be transfused, or death due to hemorrhage or intraocular bleed with vision loss. Completely 
reasonable and very important outcomes. Okay. Tell us, Mike, what do the patients look like that they were enrolled and randomized? So there's just shy of 5,000 patients in total. The average age was 65, 55% were male, 75% were white. And interestingly, 60% were on aspirin at baseline, probably because in the U.S., there's a much bigger push to aspirin for patients who have diabetes, for example, and nearly a fifth had diabetes, over half had high blood pressure, and about 16% had ischemic heart disease. Most patients were randomized within seven hours of presentation to the emergency room. And in case the listener is asking, you know, the distribution of stroke versus TIA, approximately 60% of patients had an ischemic stroke, which was their index event, and the remaining 40% had a TIA. All right. So tell us what happened. What did they find? So I feel like it's a theme in a lot of the studies we're going to be talking about today. Uh, this one was halted early after about 84% of the anticipated number of patients were enrolled. And this is because the Data Safety Monitoring Board realized that the primary efficacy outcome as well as the primary safety outcome those results were not going to change from having an additional 16% of patients enrolled. So what did they actually find? So for that composite outcome, it occurred in 5% of patients on the dual antiplatelets and 6.5% with aspirin alone. That's an absolute risk reduction of 1.5%, a relative risk reduction of 25%, and a number needed to treat of 67. And if you're wondering with a composite outcome, what was actually driving the significance, it was being driven by subsequent stroke. And most patients had a stroke within a week after their initial presenting event. From a safety standpoint, 0.9% of the dual group had a significant hemorrhage and 0.4% in the aspirin alone. That's an absolute risk increase of 0.5%, a relative risk increase of 2.3-fold, and a number needed to harm of 200. And the bleeding rates were highest from the days sort of 8 to 90. So a lot of interesting results there. Okay. Any limitations that make you question these findings? You know, I do believe the findings from this study, but a couple important limitations. The first important limitation is there was a lot of treatment discontinuation, 28% in the aspirin group, 30% in the dual group, and 93% of patients completed the trial. With that large degree of discontinuation, it wasn't like it was differential between the two groups but certainly that could decrease the potential benefits of taking what you should be taking. But again, that wouldn't affect the relative risks, but the absolute rates might have been lower for subsequent events for um, stroke or TIA. And then whenever you have a study, when patients have a TIA, you always got to ask yourself, well, how do you know? How do you know they had a TIA? Aspirin and Plavix will not benefit somebody who did not have a TIA, but it will certainly harm everyone, regardless of whether or not they had a TIA. So you're saying that in theory, if you misclassified somebody as having a TIA where they didn't, they ended up getting treated, you're going to see less differences in the efficacy of the drugs and more differences in the safety bleeding outcomes. Yeah, exactly. Just because, you know, if you or I were to take aspirin and Plavix today, we would probably have a bleed in the next 90 days, but it probably wouldn't affect our risk of subsequent stroke because we're at such a low risk because we haven't had an event yet. Okay, important to know. So what's our take-home point then? Uh, so the take-home point is that 90 days of dual antiplatelet was associated with a decreased risk of subsequent uh, stroke or, or uh, TIA, or really a decreased risk of subsequent stroke or vascular event, but an increased risk of bleeding. That's kind of the take-home point. And how are you going to apply this to practice then? So I think for me, 
considering the results of the chance trial, which showed a fairly clear benefit with no increased risk of harm, in the chance trial, people were on dual antiplatelets for 21 days, not for 90 days. And the fact that the risk of subsequent stroke was highest in the first seven days, it really makes me think that it could be very reasonable to give people dual antiplatelets, but certainly not for 90 days. So I think for me, this actually is practice changing in that I'm now going to be considering giving dual antiplatelets, but certainly not for 90 days, maybe in the order of less than 21 days for patients who I'm not really worried about subsequent bleeding, but I am worried about subsequent vascular events. Yeah, I'm absolutely on the same page of you, so uh, I won't need to repeat it, but practice changing for me. All right, take a drink of water. Round two, ding, ding, ding. Let's go. What's article number two, Mike? Number two, the short name is wake up, and the long name, which seems to be completely unrelated to that acronym, is MRI-guided thrombolysis for stroke with unknown time of onset, again published in the New England Journal in May of 2018. All right, what are we asking here from a research question standpoint? So this one is quite cool and quite pragmatic. It's, do patients who have an unknown time of onset of their stroke, so you don't know when they were last seen well, but features suggestive of a recent infarct on MRI, might those patients benefit from thrombolysis with TPA? My God, I can think of so many patients where I wish I knew that time of onset and we have to say, well, we don't. So you default to not considering TPA. So tell me about why, uh, did I just steal your thunder there? Yeah, but in like the best way possible. Like I completely agree. (laughs) That's exactly what it comes down to. And so many times we can think of the patient who comes in and you ask them, well, when were you last seen well? And they're like, well, I woke up and this is what happened. And that's not when you're supposed to start the clock. It's supposed to be, hopefully the patient was already awake and they were well, and then something happened. So I think it asks um, a very relevant question. All right. And how did they go about answering this question then, Mike? Uh, So another multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trial. This was out of Germany and not industry-funded again. This was supported by the European Union. So all the patients had to have um, MRI in MRI with flare imaging. Why did they have to have flare imaging and what is flare imaging? Well, the flare imaging will help to indicate whether this was an older infarct or whether or not this ischemic event could have occurred in the last four and a half hours. So everyone's coming to the hospital with these stroke-like symptoms, you're not sure the time of onset, everyone's getting an MRI. And then if the MRI shows what could be a recent infarct without an evidence of some old uh, infarct, then they were randomized to TPA or placebo. And the most important exclusion criteria is that if somebody had a reason for thrombectomy, they were not included. Everyone gets an MRI. Maybe we should move to Europe. Tell me, Mike, what was the primary outcome? So the primary outcome here was a favorable outcome, and it was defined using the modified um, Rankin scale. So this is looking at degree of disability. For those unfamiliar, zero on the scale is no symptoms, and six on the scale is death, uh, and a lower score um, is associated with lower disability. All right, so stroke being primarily something that causes major disability, we're looking at disability outcomes, very reasonable. Tell me, Mike, what did the patients look like in this trial? So just like the last study, mean age of 65, um, majority of patients were male. The majority of people had an unknown onset of time of when they had the stroke because most occurred in the nighttime when they were sleeping. Half had hypertension, 17% had diabetes, 12% had AFib, and 15% had a past stroke. 
And for the index event that brought them into the study, the median NIH scale was six. And our readers will remember that the range is from zero to 42 with higher numbers being associated with much higher deficits on exam. All right, what did they actually find? So another study that was stopped early, this one was stopped early because they just ran out of money, which is a very pragmatic thing that can happen. So they wanted to enroll 800 people and they only got to 503. What they found was that patients who got TPA had higher rates of favorable outcome. So 53% in the TPA group, as opposed to 41% in the placebo group. That's an adjusted odds ratio of 1.61. So like a 60% improvement. But, and this is like capital bold underline, but a 3.4 fold increase risk of death from the TPA group. 4% of people who got TPA died and a five-fold increased risk of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. And the absolute numbers were, you know, 2% of patients who got TPA. Wow. Big butt, indeed. So wake up and pay attention. Tell me, Mike, what were the limitations you saw to this trial? So the biggest limitation for me, obviously it's not ideal that they didn't reach their target and sample size, but the biggest limitation is generalizability there is no way on earth I could get an MRI that quickly in any hospital I've ever worked in. That's probably one of the biggest limitations. Otherwise, a pretty impressive study. All right. Take home point. Take home point. You know, not sure about the time of onset. Don't go fishing with an MRI. Number one, the radiology resident or staff probably won't agree to it. But number two, I think the information you get on clinical history, that should probably be driving the decision-making, not what an image shows you. Fair enough. Patient, always listen to your patient, not necessarily the test. All right, Mike, great two articles. Let's move on to round three. I'm going to take you through my two articles now. First one is looking at whether we should be giving rivaroxaban for stroke prevention in people with new terminology, embolic stroke of undetermined source, previously known as or sort of sidebarred to cryptogenic stroke. This was published by Dr. Hart in the New England Journal of Medicine in May of 2018. I really wish like New England would toss us some royalties because like we'd be racking up the money this week on the rounds table. Um, But (laughs) what was the research question for this study? Yeah, well, disclosure, we get absolutely nothing from any of the journals. So there is no incentive to cover any particular study other than they're good, high quality practice changing studies sometimes. Now that I've done my duty, Mike, the research question here is, in patients with embolic stroke of unknown source, ESAS, also kind of known as cryptogenic stroke to most of us, what is the efficacy and safety of empirically giving rivaroxaban compared to giving aspirin for the prevention of recurrent stroke? Okay, fair enough. And why is this important? Well, these types of strokes, these ESAS or cryptogenic strokes, represent about 20% of all ischemic strokes. And like most strokes, they're associated with a high rate of recurrence. Now, we know these direct oral anticoagulants, of which rivaroxaban is one, are indirectly more effective than aspirin in the prevention of stroke due to cardioembolism, and that accounts for a significant proportion of cryptogenic stroke. So by extension, it's reasonable to ask the question, do DOACs more effectively reduce the rate of recurrent cryptogenic stroke in this setting? And importantly, we're going to measure the safety cost of using them empirically as opposed to trying to find atrial fibrillation and then using them for that indication. Yeah, and I mean, I can buy that because I know we've seen before that sometimes these patients, 
you know, maybe they have atrial fibrillation or maybe there is a PFO and a clot that we just sort of missed. So maybe rivaroxaban or a DOAC would be the way to go. Yeah, that's definitely, I can buy that. So what was the study designed for this one? So this was an industry-sponsored trial. Bayer, who is the manufacturer of rivaroxaban, sponsored the trial. But as per usual, there is a great attempts to keep to keep the uh, sponsor out of the design and analysis, although Bayer had some influence in this regard, according to the manuscript. Nevertheless, this is a typical event-driven, double-blinded, randomized trial of just over 7,000 patients across 459 sites. There's where you need an industry sponsor to pay for this kind of a magnitude of a trial. It's just not going to happen otherwise. And they stratified patients whether they were age over or age under 60. Now, they were randomized to receive either 15 milligrams of rivaroxaban or 100 milligrams of aspirin, and they were also co-administered the placebo of the corresponding drug to maintain blinding uh, across all parties. Patients who were over the age of 50 who suffered an ischemic stroke that occurred between seven days and six months prior to screening, and that stroke had to be presumed to be due to cerebral embolism, but they did not find any arterial stenosis, lacunar infarcts, or an identified cardioembolic source. Those patients were included. Their primary efficacy outcome was to measure the time to the first recurrence of ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke or systemic embolism, and they countered that with the primary safety outcome of the rate of major bleeding defined in the usual way. Okay, so these weren't like patients who were coming into the emergency room with a new onset stroke. These are patients that had these events previously, it sounds like. That's right. You had had an identified stroke. A week later, up to six months later, you were reevaluated and said, all right, how should we treat this, given what we know about the different investigations you'd had at that point? And that included, by the way, at least 20 hours of cardiac rhythm monitoring before randomization to rule out atrial fibrillation that was uh, prevalent. Okay, so what did the patients look like who entered the trial? Typical patient was those who are included in most cardiovascular trials, 67-year-old Caucasian male who had hypertension, but not a major burden of other cardiovascular risk factors. Remember, this is cryptogenic stroke, not good old-fashioned atherosclerotic carotid artery kind of stroke. And they presented with a single lesion stroke and were not on ASA previously as far as the balance of numbers. Only 34% went on to have cardiac monitoring that was greater than 48 hours. And so that was just kind of neat. Okay. And what were the main results? What did they find? Well, continuing with our theme of early cessation, this trial was stopped early due to a lack of observed benefit. Uh, remember that trials that are often stopped early overestimate the effect, although in this case we didn't find an effect. And there was also major concerns regarding harm due to major bleeding in the rivaroxaban arm. So let's tell you what that looks like. At one year approximately, which is about the 11-month follow-up time for this trial, recurrent ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke occurred in 5.1% of the rivaroxaban arm compared to 4.8% in the aspirin arm. So no differences statistically there between those two groups. Recurrent ischemic stroke on its own occurred in about 4.7% of both groups. But here the major safety concerns come in. Major bleeding occurred in 1.8% of the rivaroxaban arm compared to 0.7% in the aspirin arm. That's a hazard ratio of 2.72. And almost immediately, if you look at the separation on the curves, that bleeding starts to occur and differences between the rivaroxaban and aspirin arm. The absolute rate of difference of intracranial hemorrhage, the most feared bleeding of all, was 0.2%. So 0.3% in the river, river arm versus 0.1% in the aspirin arm. So if you just try to put this in context from a clinically digestible number, 
at one year approximately, the number needed to harm to cause this kind of major bleeding is 91 for people treated with rivaroxaban compared to aspirin. Okay, cool. That's quite interesting. And interesting to compare the number needed to harm with the dual antiplatelet group. That was closer to 200, but at 90 days. So I bet it would be similar at uh, one year. Anyway, what were the main limitations of this study? Well, I think that what we are essentially targeting in this trial here is the use of a DOAC in undetected atrial fibrillation. And I suppose there's potentially a, a subgroup of people who have PFO and sort of have a paradoxical stroke. But if you think about that, you're targeting just that subset of patients, you're doomed to be negative from the outset because you're going to end up treating a whole bunch of other people with cryptogenic stroke whose cause was not atrial fibrillation or PFO, but something totally else like vasculitis or something like that, right? So I think it was doomed to be negative from the outset. Okay. So take home point for you. So I think for me, and it's a helpful practice affirming trial, is that empirically using DOACs in patients with cryptogenic stroke actually leads to increased rates of major bleedings without any additional benefit over aspirin in preventing recurrent stroke. So I think like we have learned from the EMBRACE and Crystal AF trials, that patients with cryptogenic stroke should undergo prolonged cardiac monitoring to detect subclinical atrial fibrillation. They should have echocardiograms to look for PFOs, and we've talked about that trial previously about what to do with those if they're found. But otherwise, I think you stick with aspirin and you try to figure out the cause of their cryptogenic stroke further as you follow them over time. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think the other big thing is that these were people who might have had the stroke a week ago or months ago, and that's the real window where there's benefit. You got to start them early. So anyway, that's a fascinating and it doesn't sound like it's practice changing for you. So let's go on to the next study. What do you have for us next? All right, last but not least, I thought we could focus a little bit on treating different aspects of cardiovascular disease uh, since we've talked about a lot of cardiovascular trials today. So this was to look at whether e-cigarettes were associated with smoking cessation among smokers who plan to quit after their hospitalization. This was published by Dr. Rigotti in the Annals of Internal Medicine in March of 2018. All right, and what was their research question? So they wanted to determine whether e-cigarette use after hospital discharge is associated with subsequent tobacco abstinence among smokers who plan to quit and are advised to use evidence-based treatment. All right, and why is this important? I sort of already framed it a little bit to you. We're talking a lot about cardiovascular disease and prevention today, and smoking is inherently linked to that. So often we tell people after they've had a stroke or a heart attack or even an admission for other things like lung diseases, including COPD, that today is the day, Mr. Smith, that you quit smoking. Yet we know that lots of people continue to smoke after hospitalizations for these conditions. And now we see the emergence of e-cigarettes on the market, and they're at least being touted by smokers and certainly the companies who make the e-cigarettes, that they're a smoking cessation aid. And I think these researchers really wanted to ask the question, is this really true? Are e-cigarettes helpful in smoking cessation? All right, that sounds uh, definitely an important issue to discuss. So uh, how did they try to answer this question? Yeah, so complicated design, and we're going to have to be a little bit uh, superficial on the details for the sake of time. But this was actually a secondary analysis of data that came from the Helping Hand 2 randomized trial. This was a two-group, three-site randomized control trial that looked at people who were hospitalized that were self-reported cigarette smokers and who planned to quit. Um, and they compared the various smoking cessation interventions to standard care. Now, this 
study was not randomized. This was then an observational study using the data after the trial to limit to the subset of participants who completed post-discharge e-cigarette assessments. And they assessed e-cigarette use in the prior 30 days and measured that at baseline, one, three, and six months post-hospitalization. And then they adjusted for your baseline differences between those who used e-cigarettes and those who didn't by using propensity score matching. All right. Propensity score matching, my favorite form of matching. So uh, what was the primary outcome for this study? Uh, well, the primary outcome for this study was the association between e-cigarette use in the three months after discharge and tobacco abstinence at six months after discharge. And they verified abstinence in participants using nicotine replacement therapy or e-cigarettes to by providing an in-person measurement of expired air carbon dioxide to ascertain cigarette use and carbon monoxide, I should say. So that one way we've seen in previous smoking studies on how to actually objectively verify abstinence beyond self-reporting. Yeah, and I mean, that's pretty impressive. You know, lots of limitations with observational studies, but a pretty cool outcome uh, measurement. So what did their uh, basic table one characteristics look like? So at three months post-discharge, one quarter of those who received a smoking cessation intervention versus one third of those who did not reported use of e-cigarettes. Remember, this was the randomized trial of uh, smoking cessation interventions versus not. And then this is how it plays out to those who use e-cigarettes among those arms. E-cigarette users were typically younger, they were more likely female, they on average smoked two cigarettes more per day, and they had been using e-cigarettes prior to hospitalization. These people reported that quitting was equally important between the two groups, but e-cigarette users were less confident in their ability to quit than non-e-cigarette users. And after the propensity score matching, Mike, they did a good job here. You'll see the groups were well balanced on the measured factors within the trial. Perfect. So what were the main results? Well, e-cigarette users were less likely to be abstinent at six months. Your proportions there were 10.1% of e-cigarette users versus 26.6% of non-e-cigarette users. That's an absolute risk difference of 16.5% with a number needed to harm or a number needed to not be abstinent of six. Okay, so I'm convinced that... Uh we shouldn't be recommending or using e-cigarettes. Uh, but what were some limitations of this study? Well, because this is not a randomized trial, it's just data from a randomized trial, we have to remember that the findings that we see here are not causal. And I think you can really see in your pre-matching comparison groups that there are a lot of factors that contribute to somebody who is likely to use e-cigarettes and not be abstinent including what they report, which is their confidence in their ability to quit. And that measure in and of itself carries a lot of unmeasured nuances within it. So somebody who reports that has a lot going on with them psychologically and objectively from their health status that we maybe didn't measure that would influence their ability to be abstinent at the end of the time point. So I think that's a major thing to take away from a limitation standpoint. Okay. And take home point slash uh, practice changing Anything you want to weigh in here? Yeah, so tough to sort out on a practice changing level. But the take home point is that e-cigarettes are probably not likely to significantly reduce your chances of being abstinent alone. And that's, as I said, because users are probably more likely to be turned out this way to begin with. And as we've seen before when it comes to smoking cessation and the wealth of literature, the most effective thing that people can do are set a quit date, use traditional proven smoking cessation aids, 
like nicotine replacement therapy in the form of gum and patches and some medications as well, and engage in counseling. And the best chances you have of being abstinent are about 25%. But the more you try, the more you achieve your success of quitting. So it's definitely a tough nut to crack. When it comes to e-cigarettes, I think we need a randomized trial to definitively answer this question about whether they can be used as an evidence-based smoking cessation aid. Yeah, I'll buy that. And I think definitely some good, important advice for us to continue to remember and to discuss with our patients who continue to smoke. Those are the things we can do to help them try to quit. All right, Michael, that's a great rapid fire rounds table as always. And thanks for joining us. But as you all know, it's my favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we are reading about. Mike, what is catching your attention in the medical news this week? Uh, So what caught my eye was a recent fentanyl drug bust uh, by the good old Nebraska State Patrol. Obviously, we know uh, the massive, massive problems associated with opioids and fentanyl is an extremely powerful opioid, up to 100 times more potent than morphine. And the Nebraska State Patrol, an officer was just sort of on a kind of routine day and noticed a truck that was kind of pulled off to the side of the highway. So he thought, all right, let me just go see what's going on here. Something doesn't look right. And lo and behold, within that truck, there was 118 pounds of fentanyl. That would be enough to kill 26 million Americans. So good on the officer for making that drug bust. It's the largest in the U.S. history. That certainly keeps people a lot safer on the streets. So well on them. That's an incredible amount of fentanyl. All right. Well, I looked at an article that was published in NPR Health section on why your health insurer doesn't care about your big bills. So we've seen a lot of discussion around drivers of healthcare cost, and certainly, you know, people have looked at patients, and people have looked at doctors, and people have looked at hospitals and the healthcare system infrastructure. But this article talks about the role that the insurance companies may be playing in driving up healthcare costs and all. And it tells the story of a gentleman who had uncomplicated hip replacement surgery, and the bill for his insurance company ended up being several times more than what the actual Medicare rate would be for that hip replacement surgery. So the article goes into lots of discussion around and speculation around why insurance companies may fluff up the costs of medical care. But the bottom line is, is that if it costs more, they end up making more money and passing that on to their patients in the form of insurance premiums. Whether you buy that or not as a big scandalous conspiracy theory, I'll leave it to you to read the article and make your own conclusions. But I thought it was an interesting take on other uh, players in the drivers of high healthcare costs. Absolutely. And a nice reason for living in a country that has uh, national health care. So Canada for the win. Yeah. Canada for the win. All right, Mike. Well, a great show as always having you on here. Thanks for another great rapid fire. We look forward to having you on in the future. And thanks always, as always, listeners, for tuning in. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of the Roundstable, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. 
Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research because who knows what they have in store for us. <laughs>